So as we begin reading in Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. I think that love probably has to be the most popular subject in all the world. Theologians, philosophers, psychologists all study it. Authors and those that write poetry write about it. People sing about it. They celebrate it. They portray it in videos and movies. And everybody dreams about it, thinks about it. Everything, whether it's in songs and movies and books and and poetry, within any of those endeavors, includes themes uh, dealing with love. And rightly so. In in the Bible, we find the same thing. The fascination with love doesn't happen just across the world, but the reason it happens across the world is because God. God is love as our Creator. And, And so as He created us to be people of love, then obviously that is a need and a desire within our own hearts. And we find the same thing in Scripture. In Scripture, the Bible teaches that, and this is just a quick summary. It's not by any way all-inclusive. But we see that if God is love, and in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, we see that love fulfills all of God's law. As you look at Romans and chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, in the Gospel of John, it would tell us that His disciples would be known by their love one for another. The Bible teaches us that love is the greatest commandment as we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and might. And the second commandment also is one to love, and that is to love our neighbor as ourself. Also, love is above the spiritual gifts. If you remember in the book of Corinthians when he writes to the church in Corinth who is all about the spiritual gifts and focus on these gifts, he says, let me show you a better way. Faith, hope, and love. And he said, even among those, the greatest of these is love. And then Jesus also taught that if we love our enemies, then we're actually mirroring the character of our Father who is in heaven. He said that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Love is a prominent and a popular theme throughout our culture, I think throughout every culture, and throughout the Bible as well. It is the prominent theme. And that's exactly why when we get to Ephesians chapter 5, if you remember what he's telling us to do, to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called, well, obviously, if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we get from the God who is the God of love, who is himself love, then we are going to have to also walk in love. Or maybe I shouldn't say have to walk in love. We get to walk in love. There really is no better place to walk. We're going to look at that, and that's what these couple of verses here are all about is this idea of walking in love. Now walk, obviously, again, as we've pointed out in other cases, and we'll continue throughout the, through the rest of the book of Ephesians, walk is, means this is how you live. This is our manner of living, how you go about life. As you walk through this world, this is what it should contain, and our walk should contain a walk of love. Now as we consider that, the first thing that it gives us in the first two verses is love's pattern. Love's pattern. And he's going to use the example of God, and he's going to use the example of the Son, Jesus Christ. Now let's start with God. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. This passage is kind of a bridge that connects chapter 4 and what comes after it in chapter 5. Because notice that this verse starts out with the word therefore, means it's pointing back to what 
he just got done saying. And if you remember what he got done saying, that we should put off the old man and put on the new man. And how is that new man described? Back in, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, in verses 21 and 22, it says, Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, speaking about Christ, as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self. And so he's pointing to the fact that the truth is in Christ. The new man is in Christ. So we should put off the old self because of our position, our relationship to Christ. And so the point I'm making is when he says in chapter 5, be imitators of God and of Christ, that's really what he was saying already in chapter 4. So he's continuing that line of thought. And then in chapter 4, verse 24, it says, and to put on the new self, which is what created after the likeness of God. And so our new man is created after the likeness of God. And so it just makes sense that then we would be imitators of God. And when you get right to the end of chapter 4 and verse 32, he ends chapter 4 with this. And remember, the chapters were added later. So I'm not saying that the Apostle Paul was coming to the end of his chapters. He was thinking about it. But he says, forgiving one another. And he says, as God in Christ forgave you. So he told us, look, your new man is created in the likeness of God. And so, just as he forgives, we should forgive And then he goes right into chapter 5 where he says, therefore, let's imitate him. Let's do what he does. Let's be what he is. In this passage, it's to walk in love. In fact, he says in verse 1 there, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Let's focus just on that word children for a couple of minutes. You see, the point that he's making here is he says, look, we should be imitators of God as his children. If God is our Father, we should look like Him. And so since God is a God of love, we should be very loving people. We have the the honor and that privilege to reflect the image of God in that way through our capacity to love one another. In fact, as we already pointed out, Jesus said, by this the world will take notice that, that you're my disciples because you love one another. Recently, I was I was with somebody that I know this individual and I also know their father. And I was telling my wife after being with that person, I said, you know, it's really interesting to watch this person and his father. They use a lot of the same words and they make a lot of the same gestures and they have a lot of the same mannerisms. And and it just makes sense because that's who raised them. That's who he grew up around. You know, I've heard throughout my life statements about man. Doesn't he look like his dad? Doesn't he look like his father? And it continues from there. I know in my family... Commonly a point of discussion that Ryder, Ryder looks a lot like me. And that's because he looks like Tim, who looks like me. And so there's a lot of similarity in our family. That's exactly the point that he's making is that as we have God as our Father, we should look like Him. Our new self is created in the likeness of God. And that's why, like in passages like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9, It says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And in Ephesians, he says that's the way we should be. We should be imitators of God as His children. But he doesn't just say children. He has a qualifier there. He says, as beloved children. Pointing out the fact that we are not just God's children, but but that He loves us. Now, God doesn't have any children that He doesn't love. I'm not saying that. But the fact that He would throw that word in there also. That, look, you are my loved child. 
You know, it was a little humbling to me to realize that that's the same terminology used for Jesus. You know, in a couple different times when he announced his son, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's given us the same title. These, you are my beloved child. That's pretty awesome. And throughout the book of Ephesians, he's already been pointing out this fact that we are loved by God. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 is the first time that it comes up. It says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. In all these instances, it's the word agape for love. It's that godly, that divine love, that unconditional love that is not based on any merit on our part or any attractiveness that we had toward God. It solely is focused on the fact of the individual doing the loving and their capacity to love. And God, because of His great ability to love, loves us even though we're unlovable. And it says that He chose us before the foundation of the world. That means that God knew you before the foundation of the world. God knew all the stupid things you were going to do in this life. God knew all the ways that you would be unfaithful to Him or that you would trip and that you would stumble and that you would blow it. And He chose you anyway. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? He highlights that point when he gets to chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians. If you'll remember in verses 4 and 5, he says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. When God loved you, He didn't love you on your best day. He loved you on your worst day. It doesn't say that God loved us in our accomplishments, you notice that. It says that God loved us when we were dead in our trespasses. The fact of the matter is the day that I need to love the most is on my worst day, not necessarily my best. He said He made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. And then when we got up into chapter 3, we also recognized that he focused on the love of Christ there as well. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now notice, he says, That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Apostle Paul says, look, when I pray for you, I just pray that you really get a glimpse of the love of, that God has for you. In chapter 5, he says, As beloved children, we should by this point in studying the book of Ephesians have no question as to whether or not we are loved by God. And that's supremely important. It's important in our life and our relationship with God. It's important in our life and our relationship with others because our love that we receive from God should overflow out of us onto other people as we imitate God and express His love toward them as well. In fact, I think that if you don't understand the love that you have from God, you're crippled in your ability to love other people. You know, years ago, the self-esteem movement got a big push and got all fired up and going. And unfortunately, like most things of the world, they got it backwards. They got it wrong. The main reason they got it wrong is because it was fostered by humanistic psychology, which leaves out the concept of God. And so in their understanding of experiencing love, they only had two equations. Love of others and love of yourself. Leaves out the primary equation that's necessary for the whole situation, which is the love of God for us. 
And so the conclusion that they came down to ended up upside down. The conclusion that they came to was, look, if you don't love yourself, then your tank's not full enough to be able to love other people. But the only problem with that is, if, if it's all about loving yourself to be able to love other people, then it, it breeds narcissism. You end up being the center of all things. You end up being the focus of all things. And, and so narcissistic people don't tend to be real good at loving their neighbors. And so it doesn't pan out. It doesn't work. But the equation that they left out is the one that matters the most. And that's what he's saying here. Is that you, as beloved children, should imitate God in loving others. As beloved children. In other words, as children who already yourself experience the love of God in your life. Let that overflow onto other people. And that's how it works. Until we experience or understand the love of Christ in our life, until we accept the love of Christ through the Gospel, we're crippled in our ability to, to love and relate to other people. But as we experience the love of God as His beloved children, now we're in a good place. Now we're in a good place to love other people. Because we know what love is. Because we've experienced it, getting it from God. So now we can imitate that and share that with other people. In the epistle of 1 John, the Apostle John points that out. He says in chapter 4, verses 7-11, through 11, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so we have this capacity to love because that capacity has been filled by God as He pours His love into us. Now that happens through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. As you notice, these passages on love keep going that direction. They keep heading toward the Gospel because the Gospel is the greatest demonstration of love ever given. Jesus says, Greater love has no man than that He lay down His life for His friends. And so the first example that he gives us is the example of God, the Father. The second example he gives us is the example of Christ. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so within this, we get a greater understanding of exactly what it means to love. You see, love in our society is portrayed in our books and movies and all those things as a warm, fuzzy feeling. And that can and should be part of an experience of love. But it is far from the whole deal. Love is actually also an act of the volition whereby it chooses. Remember when we talked about how God loved us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, there isn't anything there that's really listed as being overly attractive on our part. God didn't love us because we had so much potential. We were dead. There's no potential in death. God didn't love us because we had so much beauty or so much goodness. The Bible tells us we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God loved us because He wanted to love us. Because He is loving. And so, as you watch God's love be fulfilled, it still does not continue to follow the lines of this warm, fuzzy experience. Actually, it follows a very cold line going to the cross. And Jesus would undergo all the suffering and all the ridicule and all the shame as He heads toward the cross. But He says, there's love right there that Jesus would give of Himself for our benefit. Why did Jesus go to the cross? We don't add anything to Him. 
He's not a greater God if we're there than if we're not. He's not any more just or holy or, or loving or anything else. He's still that same person that He was whether we are in heaven or not, whether we're saved or not. But why did Jesus do it? For our sake. He gave Himself for us. That's what love's all about. Love is about shedding some of the self-centeredness that we're born with. Starting to strip off that self-focus and that self-centered and that self-accomplished life and pouring ourselves into satisfying somebody else, towards being a benefit to somebody else, giving towards, contributing towards, helping somebody else. That's where love is. Love is found in sacrifice. You know, Lisa and I have been reading a book lately on, on a passage coming up. I hear a little bit later in Ephesians, because before we get to the end of the chapter, he's going to be applying the same principle to the marriage relationship. And he's going to tell husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And most of what the book is about that we've been reading so far is about self-centeredness and how within the marriage relationship is really the best school in the world to teach you how self-centered you are and to try to help you overcome it and to help you learn how to love one another. Because every day is not a warm fuzzy. You're going to have different frustrations and struggles that you go through. But as you go through those frustrations and struggles, you learn, at least you should learn, how to put that other person first how to make sacrifices for them, how to give here so that they can have there. That's what makes a stronger marriage. Well, it's not just in the marriage, but also in the churches. He's telling these people, imitate God as His beloved children. You need to imitate Christ, who showed us ultimately how to love by laying down His life for you. As I think of illustrations or examples, I think of parents. Parents always putting themselves last for the interests and the abilities and the opportunities for their kids. That's a great picture of love. It's that selflessness as we put others above ourselves. As we look at this next point and we go on from here into verse 3, it seems like a huge contrast. In fact, I was kind of wondering as we read through the passage when we hit verse 3 what some of your reaction would be. Because we mentioned that we were going to be talking about love, and we are talking about love, and the first two verses are about love, and then when you hit verse 3, it kind of steps into another section. It starts with the word but, and then it goes on to describe something else. It says sexual immorality and impurity, and, and you start thinking, oh, wait a minute, what does this have to do with love? We were having a nice talk about love. Love is a fun sub- subject. It's a, it's a popular subject. Why are we talking about this? And when I was breaking down the passage about where, where we're going to focus this week, where we're going to focus next week and the following weeks, uh, where, where should we land this? I found that I thought verse 3 was the best place, the end of verse 3. Now, verse 3 is not the end of the thought. The thought continues. The reason I thought it had to be included here is because of the very first word, the word but. Because he's showing a contrast. He's saying, look, when we focus on the love of Christ, that self-sacrificing, that self-giving love of Christ. And then he says, but, in other words, pointing a contrast, if we go into what often the world looks at as love, it is not that love. It's a perversion of that love. I didn't go farther into it because it's going to end up kind of switching subjects and going from love to light to walking in love, to walking in light, and not in darkness. But you know what? These elements that it brings up here, the sexual immorality and the impurity, end up being the darkness that he talks about that we're supposed to live as lights in the world in the midst of that darkness. So these things are in contrast to the light that we're going to learn about next week, but it's also in contrast to the love that we're learning about now. And the distinction of what love is is very important. Because our culture would have you think that this passionate, erotic 
Love is the one that trumps all of other concepts of love and that any sacrifice in life ought to be made for what is often actually sexual immorality. And so as we look at love here this morning, we're looking at love's pattern. We see that we ought to imitate the love that is modeled for us before God the Father and through the Son, Jesus Christ, as he lays down his life on our behalf. But as we go from here, then we also see love's perversion because Satan always does that. Satan always takes that which is beautiful and he makes it ugly. Satan always takes the creation of God that is good and wholesome and he corrupts it. We are created to be sexual beings. If you look back and think back to the creation of the world and the creation of the husband and wife and that marriage relationship, God actually commands them to get involved in sexuality because you don't have kids without that. And he told them to be fruitful and to multiply. When you look up into the New Testament, sex is continued to look at as a good thing between a husband and wife. It says not to deprive one another, but to enjoy that part of your relationship in the marriage relationship in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. But the problem is, in our sinful humanness, there is always the temptation to take it out of bounds and to participate in it outside of that covenant relationship that God intended it for and to participate in it in a way that God never intended it to be used for. But that's exactly what Satan pushes us toward. This is in contrast to the love that God has for us. Because remember, the love that God has for us is what? Self-sacrificing. The what is labeled love that is participated in in sexual immorality is actually self-serving. You're putting what your desires are, what your passions are, what your wants are ahead of what is actually a benefit for that other person. Now, the Bible is clearly against this in, in many different ways. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 and 3, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Just as we said at the beginning of the passage, as God loves, we need to love. Well, the Bible maintains that same theme, uh, but with purity or with holiness. He says, look, just as God is pure, we need to be pure. In fact, he look, points forward in First John to the day when we're going to stand before Christ. And he says, look, we know this one thing, that when we see him, we're going to be like him because we will see him as he is. And then it identifies him as pure. So we need to be pure as he is pure. First Peter does the same thing. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As we consider the idea of love and following God's example in love, we need to also consider the idea of holiness and follow God's example in holiness in impurity. Why? Because in this passage, the opposite of that is sexual morality and impurity and greed, covetousness, and that is a perversion of the love that God wanted us to participate in that's consistent with his nature. But rather, sexual morality seeks to exploit somebody else for your own pleasures. In First Thessalonians, he deals somewhat extensively in chapter 4. In verses 1 through 8, he says, Finally then, my brothers, we ask 
and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Notice that. That's, it's very similar to what we're going through in Ephesians. And Ephesians says we want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. He, in Thessalonians, he says, look, we want to walk in a manner that pleases God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now notice that little phrase. For this is the will of God. You don't have to question this. You don't have to pray about this. This is the will of God. That you, your sanctification, which means you being brought closer to God, you being holy because He is holy, this is the will of God. You abstain from sexual immorality. It's a cheap imitation of the real deal. And then he goes on from there and says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. You couldn't be stronger than what he's being. He says, look, this is his will. No question about it. And he is an avenger in this. In other words, the Lord's not just going to overlook this. He's an avenger against this. He's, he's going to get involved if you follow this path. And you're not going to like it. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. A little bit later in the passage that we'll deal with next week in Ephesians, he makes a similar statement. He says this, don't let anybody fool you with words. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, anybody that disregards this, you're not just disregarding me, you're disregarding God. This is absolutely God's will for you that you not participate in this sexual immorality. And God is an avenger against these things. And if you disregard this, you have God to deal with because that's who you're disregarding. You're disregarding God. You're not disregarding your culture. You're not disregarding your parents' stuffy rules and regulations. You are disregarding God. Now, why? Why does Satan so bent on corrupting this love? Well, one, that's his nature. But two, it's because of the beauty of the love that God has for us in Christ. Satan can bring it all the way down to the gutter to where what we consider love or call love is something that is very not loving. When you think of what Christ did, Christ sacrificed of himself. What does sexual immorality involve? Sexual immorality involves somebody trying to get their own pleasures fulfilled at really the expense of somebody else. And I don't even mean just because they're not consenting. I mean, even if they're consenting, you're still damaging them. Why? In the passage, it tells us the place place that it puts them before God as they participate in this thing. So if you're involved in putting somebody in that kind of position before God, you're not doing them any favors. You're doing them harm. Not only that, but their character will be shaped by this. It might bother them the first time, but it's not going to bother them so much the next time and then the next time. And so you corrupt their character by participating in this with them as well. I've thought about this so many times in dealing with teenagers down through the years. And teenagers pay close attention. If somebody is pressuring you to get involved in this kind of activity, this kind of immorality, they're putting you at odds with your family. They're willing to risk your relationships with inside your family to do the same thing. They're willing to risk your future and what might end up of your future. They're even willing to risk your safety, their health consequences as well. So when you participate in something like this, you are not self-sacrificing, which is love. You are self-satisfying. 
which can be the farthest from it. Now, I don't mean to say that that doesn't include some affectionate feelings, but affectionate feelings will not override or undo all those damaging consequences. Young people, you look for this in marriage. You look for the person that is willing to deny themselves to protect your honor, willing to deny themselves to protect your family relationships, willing to deny themselves to ensure your future, willing to sacrifice of themselves. Because if you find a person that understands that is willing to sacrifice for your better, you're finding somebody that can love. You know what? It's not just young people. It's the adults. When you look at adultery, how many adulterous relationships are got into with the excuse of love? And I have a hard time seeing any love in it. You want to know why? Because it's not real loving to your children. And it's not real loving to the other person's children. And it sure isn't loving to your spouse. You're going to destroy two families over this kind of thing. That's the distinction that he's drawing here. He's given us this great picture of this modeled love by God. And it's modeled by Him giving of His Son, Jesus Christ, and and by the Son sacrificing Himself for us. That's what love is. He says, but not what the world is going to call love. This is something that the Bible, that God takes very seriously. And we're going to learn a little bit more next week just how serious. But this is part of what draws the picture of that dark world. Even as Christians, he's writing to the Thessalonians in this passage here in 1 Thessalonians 4. They were doing good in their faith, hope, and love. But he still needed to warn them because this is a place of confusion. This is something that culture, that a society, that individuals can mistake for the warm, fuzzy feelings of love, but it is absolutely not that. The love that God loves us with is that self-sacrificing, putting other people's needs above our own.